We proudly present the unverifiable truth claim, the religious studies panel game based on truth and lies. And in the chair, please welcome David Robertson. <laughs> Guys, I know he's not me, but he's doing his best, all right? <laughs> I'm in so much trouble already. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the unverifiable truth claim coming at you today from the BASR conference at the University of Wolverhampton. Please welcome the panel. Chris Cotter, Katie Aston, Kritika Batter... B- B- <laughs> <laughs> Anything will do, it's fine. <laughs> Kritika Batataji and Jonathan Tuckett. <laughs> Wolverhampton was famously described by the Lonely Planet Travel Guide in 2009 as the fifth worst city to live in in the world. (laughs) We strongly disagree with the recent investment and development they could easily make second or third in a year or two. (laughs) Wolverhampton is one of several ham towns in England, market towns where people would come to buy and sell swine. This may be puzzling for our US listeners, for whom the Hamptons are a place where rich swine go to buy and sell people. (laughs) Wolverhampton also earned its place in rock history due to the group Slade, who once saw the Beatles here. (laughs) The local football team are called the Wanderers, presumably because they, like everyone else, would rather go anywhere except Wolverhampton. (laughs) (laughs) The rules of the game are very simple. The panel is made up of four players. In the game, each of the panellists is given a subject on which they will present a short lecture. Most of the lecture is composed of lies, but during the course of the speech, the lecturer must try and smuggle in five true statements past the rest of the panel. The challenging panellists must buzz in when they believe that what the lecturer has said is true. They must state what they believe the fact to have been. If true, the challenger is awarded one point. If it was a lie, however, they are deducted one point. And one point is given to the lecturer for each truth they smuggle successfully without it being detected at the end of the lecture. The winner is the panellist with the most points. It's time to introduce our first panellist. Christopher Cotter is co-founder of the Religious Studies Project, but is today representing our munificent sponsors, the BASR, for whom he is honorary treasurer. In previous years, this role has been taken by Stephen Gregg, so Chris has some very light shirt to fill. <laughs> he is also an accomplished singer, performing both light opera and choral music. Chris is the inventor of the term non-religion, a term which signifies identification in opposition to religion, and not anything which isn't religion, as one might think. He's also non-single, has a non-hairstyle, and is non-not-Irish. <laughs> Chris will be telling us about the world religions paradigm, a system of categorising religions with five or six discrete traditions taking priority. On your time. Okay. <clears throat> The world religions paradigm was developed by frequent BASR attendee and interfaith apologist Timothy Fitzgerald (laughs) in a working paper titled The Ideology of Critical Religion. This paper was instrumental in Interfaith Scotland's decision that there are, in fact, seven world religions. Fitzgerald drew his inspiration from the 1893 World Parliament of Religions, notably attended by L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, 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 the 1893 Parliament of World Religions bit is the truth. Which part specifically? Uh, the, uh, the, the bit before he started talking about L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> 
Which bit exactly? <laughs> uh, hang on. Uh, can you repeat the last bit? <laughs> I'm, I'm not allowed to repeat. Oh, right, okay. Right uh, no, because... Uh, you, well, well uh, uh. Is it that there was a world parliament? In 1893, yes. Yes, there was. That is technically true. Yeah. It, it, it is technically true. It wasn't the truth we were intending, but <laughs> unfortunately that is It's my true. fault for smuggling in an extra truth. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll okay. have to continue there. We'll have to continue. That is one point to, uh, to Jordan. Notably attended by L. Ron Hubbard, Noddy Holder, and Annie Besant. And also from a cornucopia of popular coffee table books, including The Complete Idiot's Guide to World Religions, World Religions, A Very Short Introduction, and World Religions, What Do They Know? Do They Know Things? Let's Find Out. <laughs> According to Russell McCutcheon, the paradigm is, quote, popular with scholars because it allows us to more fully express religion's unique spiritual essence and rank its varied manifestations according to C.P. Thiel's original and unproblematic criterion, their intentions to conquer the world. Ultimately, the paradigm allows us to effectively ignore the petty misdemeanors of colonialism. That's true. The paradigm does let us allow us to ignore the petty colonialism thingy, majiggy. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah. What, what I'm going to yeah. say is that's a point to Jonathan, but you haven't lost a point. Okay. Is that fair? I think that's yeah, good. That's, that's yeah. Fair. yeah, yeah, all right. <clears throat> the petty misdemeanors of colonialism and return to the classificatory system that was written into God's plan from the start of time. <laughs> Anyone looking for more information on what Jonathan Tuckett has dubbed the world's religion's paradigms... That's true, I do say the world's religion's paradigms. And that's a point to Jonathan and one point deducted from Chris. <laughs> Can look to the forthcoming Culture on the Edge book series... Explorations in World Religions, I Know What It Is When I See It. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. And at, the end of, at the end of that round, you managed to smuggle four truths past the rest of the, uh, uh, of the contestants there. Uh, the first was that, in fact, Interfaith Scotland have decided that there are seven world religions. Um, in a recent uh, published, published <coughs> statement. Um, You've got to include the Baha'i. They include the Baha'is, of course. The second was that there is a book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to World Religions. It was edited by Brandon Toropov and Father Luke Buckles and was published by Alpha Books in May 2011. The third truth, which Jonathan almost stumbled onto, was that Annie Besant was in fact uh, present at the uh, Parliament of World Religions. Well, I should have made um, up a fake date for that. Shouldn't <laughs> yes, I the date, but uh, never mind. Uh, the fourth truth uh, was that C.P. Tila did define world religions by those which intend to conquer the world in his Encyclopedia Britannica entry from 1884. Mm. The term world religions might still be retained for practical use to distinguish the three religions which have found their way to different races and peoples, and all of which profess the intention to conquer the world from such communities, national religions, as are generally limited to a single race or nation, and when they have extended farther, have done so only in the train of and in connection with a superior civilization. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, David.
it to you next anyway. <laughs> Our next contestant is Katie Aston. Katie Aston is a sociologist from London and is today representing the Religious Studies Project for whom she is features editor. Katie is a contradiction in many ways. She studies religion, but atheism. She lives in the south of England and doesn't vote conservative. She has been a committee member of Sockrell, but is nevertheless interested in theoretical issues. <laughs> Katie will today be telling us about the Free Thought Movement. When you're ready, Katie. The Free Thought Movement began as a revival of Christianity and a promotion of conservative political ideals. Many of the founders have had a surprising influence on popular culture today. In fact, the chemicals known as free radicals were named after them. George Jacob Holyoke had designs on a career as a mechanic. And... That's true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I haven't buzzed away. I haven't buzzed yet. Okay. And a mathematics teacher in Birmingham. That bit is true. Don't Process of elimination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was not considered to be sufficiently right-wing for the job. Moving <laughs> to Worcester, he began as editor of the publications with the titles The God Delusion, The End of Faith, and Breaking the Spell, which would later be ripped off by the new atheists Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennis. I think I got in there first. <laughs> they did write those books. They ripped them off. Those I was going to say the truth is that they're all new atheists. Chris, would you, like to, would you like to narrow your answer down slightly? My answer was that those three books were written by those three authors in that order. They were, but only The God Delusion was actually one of his pamphlets. The rest of it was incorrect, so I'm afraid I can't give you the point. Stop, that's tough. It is tough. Tough but finger. Holyoke's <laughs> rival, Charles Bradlaugh, was an influence on punk music. As an MP, he was founder of the member of founding member of the Monster Raving Looney Party, famously refused to swear an oath to the Queen while the Queen. That's true. That is true. Oh, <laughs> Kate. <laughs> Katie's clever use of the list didn't throw you there. Uh, and was a Republican who wore clothing emblazoned with the ironic slogan, God Save the Queen. He was regularly kicked out of Parliament for mooning, sticking two things up, and jeering when anyone said anything he disagreed with. He famously hooked up with the wife of the vicar and in 1876 was imprisoned for obscenity for his pamphlet, The Fruits of Philosophy, which advocated using the food, the poor as food, later inspiring the science fiction movie Soylent Green. In his novel, in his novel Brave New World, Aldous Huxley coined the title. Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to have to be a point, I'm afraid. I, you know, I give you the benefit of the doubt last time. Okay. In his novel, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley coined the term agnosticism as a word to describe political apathy. This word was later used by his brother, Julian Huxley, to describe the state of not being able to choose between Darwin and God. And he later published pamphlets on the topic, There's Not Enough Evidence, How Can We Really Know About This? And I'm About 90% Sure. <laughs> he was later accused of failing to continue the political antics of the former free radicals, earning the nickname Darwin's Tammy for general indifference and sitting on the fence. I'm going to say that's true. It is not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one have buzzed in a while. <laughs> one point lost. Fair enough. That's the end of my lecture. Oh, Damn. So it 
Katie's five truths then were that uh, Holyoke began his career as a teacher in Birmingham but was not considered uh, to be sufficiently right-wing. Um, he did publish a pamphlet uh, entitled The God Delusion, which was later, of course, a famous publication for um, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, he famously refused to swear an oath to the Queen while taking a seat in Parliament, which uh, we have heard already. Um, and he and Annie Besant uh, worked together, and he was, in fact, uh, imprisoned for obscenity in 1876. Thank you, Katie. There we go. Next, we move to Kritika Batatarjee. Nope. <laughs> Next, we move to Kritika Batacharji. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we move to Kritika Batacharji, a PhD candidate in the University of Edinburgh, who also performs in a theatre troupe. Although born in India, her research is mostly focused on Scotland. She complains bitterly about the Scottish weather and food, but is happy to come here to study and to take part in the Edinburgh Festival. Therefore, she will almost certainly end up working for the BBC. <laughs> she is a Hindu, and whether she agrees with that or not doesn't even matter. <laughs> Today, she will be telling us about the Scottish island of Iona, a small island off Mull, another small island. <laughs> During his gap year from the court of King Arthur, chief of the Death Eaters Merlin visited Iona. That's true. He did visit Iona. <laughs> no, he didn't. He was chief of the Death Eaters. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. He said of it that it was strange, magical, and that he wished things other than parsnips grew on the island. Only parsnips grow on the island. I'm afraid that's not true. Indeed, the Guardian reported that the main constraint on Iona's popularity as a pilgrimage spot is the quality of its food. The author described her meal as more slop than soup. Joining the ranks of Robert Louis Stevenson, who complained about being served inedible chicken, and James Boswell, saying that the cows of Iona... Robert Louis Stevenson being served inedible chicken. You're correct. Um, in a letter to his mother about a meal in the Argyle Hotel, he said, To eat it was simply impossible. Toughness here was at its farthest. I did not know before that flesh could be so tough. I <laughs> <coughs> um, hadn't met Jonathan. <laughs> And James Boswell said of it that the cows on Iona produced beef that was stringier than dandelion weeds. This would have appalled St. Columba, after whom the island is named, and St. Columba is said to have chewed on dandelion weeds between Vespers and Compline Service. St. Columba did the chewing thing, yeah? No? Crap. (laughs) I'm afraid not. That's a point lost. Um, And he also had a well-documented suspicion of cows. But he might well be the reason. <laughs> but he might well be the reason for Iona's food culture. Legend has it that as he slept on a bed of nettles with a stone for a pillow, he slept on beds of nettles. I'm afraid not. Damn. <laughs> he was a downy kind of guy. <laughs> he was woken up by a pack of druids. He chased the druids around with a strip of sycamore wood, and the druids cursed the island with an in- inhospitable food and muddy water. This is why the water on Iona used to be brown, why the island has no sycamore trees, why There are no sycamore trees on Iona. I'm afraid there are sycamore trees on Iona. (laughs) There are no parsnips, though. (laughs) The parsnips won't grow because of the shade. They don't get enough sunlight. 
this is why pirates who dock their ships on the harbor on Sunday attend mass but never eat the communion wafers. And finally, this is why Beyonce brought her yacht near Iona but chose not to disembark because she didn't fancy parsnip soup and no one was serving lemonade. Uh, Beyonce did park near Iona but she didn't get off. That's true. That is 100% correct. Um, the fact that, she, that her ship was docked in Oban is reported in the local papers. And also people on Facebook on Iona said that yes. she's definitely docked near Iona as well. It's there. Thank you, Critico. Critico, you did manage, however, to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel. Um, First, that um, St. Columba was on record uh, terrified of cows. Um, Or had a dislike of cows, rather. Um, From uh, The Life of St. Columba by Adomnan. Is that the... uh, Adomnan. Where there is a cow, there is a woman, and where there is a woman, there is mischief. <laughs> this, is the ki- this is the kind of thing that gets you sainted. <laughs> the second truth you successfully smuggled was that uh, St. Columba used a stone for a pillow. In fact, an indented stone is presently displayed inside the abbey. The, the legend is that he used it for a pillow. Well, yes, that's, yes. <laughs> I took that for red, but... Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is true that he is alleged to have used this stone for a pillow. Um, <laughs> everyone's alleged to have done <laughs> and the third truth is that until recently tap water um, in Iona was brown and uh, but by all accounts drinkable and uh, kept failing health and safety checks um, it was drawn from a lock in the southern side of the island and, and tasted strongly of peat <laughs> thank you Critica So finally, we turn to Jonathan Tuckett. Jonathan Tuckett is a phenomenologist. No one is exactly sure what that means, not even Jonathan, although it seems to involve shouting. (laughs) In his spare time, he practices taekwondo and is Mr. Claypool in a -a Rent-A-Ghost tribute act. (laughs) I am also legally obliged to add that I enjoyed his novel, The Legend of Farfield. And that there are quite a few copies still available. <laughs> Jonathan will, perhaps unsurprisingly, be telling us about phenomenology, defined as the study of meaning through phenomena. Jonathan. Originally, phenomenology was the science of optics. This, however, didn't prove very popular among opticians, and phenomenology was rebranded by Bip Pibadota, whose evocative Manamana thesis was developed into an entire phenomenological movement inspired by the possibility of doing philosophy about wine glasses. <laughs> However, this met stiff competition from the Snothtins, who developed the now popular do 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 thesis. This has caused a schism, 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 which has given rise to the phenomenology of religion as the proper study of Manamana. Starting, started by Gerardus van der Leeuw, the phenomenology of religion accounts for the problem of... We could start it by van der Leeuw. I'm afraid that's not true. That's a point lost, Chris. I'm, I'm, uh... Jim Cox did not hear this. <laughs> <laughs> He's with us in spirit. <laughs> but we bracketed him out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> accounts for the problem of do 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 which Russell McCutcheon has taken a step further to argue we are all religious even when we don't realise it. This has met stiff opposition because no one really knows what religion is. 
Well, the last bit's true. No one really knows what religion is. You're 100% correct. If you do know what it is, you're a theologian. <laughs> this has also been the criticism of Husserl, who argues that the phenomenology of religion has misunderstood the meaning of manamana. His focus on the thing in itself meant that religion was relative. The thing in itself. I'm afraid that's not true. Oh. <laughs> right. Great lesson in phenomenology. I'm so glad I put this in. Husserl was about the things themselves, not the thing in itself. Oh. Important distinction. Nobody wants to buzz in because that is what that is true, what you just <laughs> yeah. said there. Can we bracket off the explanations until later? <laughs> well, everyone else wrote longer explanations than I did on the thing. Sorry. Anyway. His focus uh, uh, was relatively unimportant to him and that Heidegger should deal with it. <laughs> Heidegger responded by accusing Husserl of the doobie-doobie-doo fallacy, which creates the transcendental problem of be-doobie-doo, be-doobledoo. And then Iliada, in turn, accused Heidegger for being too obsessed with man himself, the dirty bugger, and advocated yet another... <laughs> it is correct, Eliade's principal criticism of Heidegger and Sartre was of putting forward a man who creates himself rather than a homo religiosus. Iliada advocated yet another return to the do-do-do-do-do, a problem that remains unresolved to this day. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> And what? at the end of that baffling presentation, <laughs> Jonathan did in fact manage to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel. First is that phenomenology was originally a science of optics. John Lambert, who first coined the term... Johan. John, John Johan or John no, Lambert? No, Johan Lambert. Oh, sorry, that's an autocorrect fail. <laughs> Johan Lambert, who first coined the term, used it to donate transcendental optics... Another term for the rules of perception. The second point is that Sartre was originally inspired to do phenomenology through a wine glass by a friend who demonstrated that by drinking a glass of wine they were in fact doing phenomenology. All of you right now. I win. And the third one you managed to smuggle successfully was that Husserl was unimpressed by Heidegger and thought that he should do phenomenology of religion as it, he didn't see it as at all important. Thank you, Jonathan. Of course. Brief pause. Phenomena. 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 Can you lose a point for not getting not getting the tune right? You just said bara bara in the middle, and that kind of broke the like. Yeah, because that's following the lines of the song. Got it, got it. We got it. It's like a mad joke. At the end of the game, our uh, illustrious, my illustrious colleague and BSR uh, treasurer has unfortunately only scored one point. In equal second place. Uh, we have both Kritika and Katie with three points each. But by far the winner 
Jonathan Tuckett with an astonishing six points. <laughs> now, next year, I'm going to be the host so that everyone gets a fair chance in the competition. <laughs> Thanks to everybody for coming to the recording of our Christmas special for 2016. Our festive winter break special. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to our guests... They were truly unverifiable, and that's the unverifiable truth claim. Thanks for listening. The Unverifiable Truth Claim was devised by John Neesmith and Graham Garden. It featured David Robertson in the chair with panelists Chris Cotter, Katie Ashton, Critica Bhattacharjee, and Jonathan Tuckett. It was produced by David Robertson for the Religious Studies Project with apologies to the BBC, but with great thanks to the BASR and NAASR. Thanks for listening.